G'day, you're listening to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David, and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. This week's sermon is entitled Born of God, and it's the last of our Light and Love series, looking at the book of 1 John. This sermon will focus on 1 John chapter 5. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Our first reading comes from the first letter of John, chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the, ch- the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is in the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray for me as I pray for you. Loving Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, in your grace, came into live into our world and that you rose again for us and that you are now ruling and reigning as our ascended Lord and King. As we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see what you have to say to us and lives ready to apply it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, to begin with, this morning we're going to do something that's very un-Anglican. Um, I want to encourage you to turn to someone close to you and say, repeat after me, children, keep yourselves from idols. You turn to someone beside you and say, children, keep yourself from idols. Well done. <laughs> well done. Looks like you're having a bit of a conversation about what you were saying to each other. <laughs> now, we've been going through the book of 1 John for the last six weeks. The final verse here seems like such a departure from what John has been talking about the whole way through the book. And some have been wondering... Uh, Some scholars even wonder if uh, there's actually an extra ending, if perhaps John didn't want to finish on this line but had more to say. Of the 2,517 words in 1 John, that's right, I counted. No, I didn't. I went to the internet. (laughs) Um, 2,517 words in 1 John, idols are mentioned only here in the last word of the whole book. John has spoken about light and darkness, sin and forgiveness, lies and love, and we've seen him trying to breathe new life and new hope into a church he loves after false teaching has ripped it apart. John is coming to the end of his life. Many of Jesus' other disciples are dead. His church seems to be dying. And in 1 John 5.21, he finishes with this surprise ending. Children, keep yourselves from idols. It's the princess rescuing the knight and the bad guy turning out to be the good guy kind of stuff. But this final verse is key to understanding the fullness of what John wants to say to us in this letter. So let's unpack it a little bit more. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Here John reiterates three hallmarks of a true Christian. Love, obedience, and belief. If someone believes that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will love God. As an extension, they will love their fellow believers and they will live lives of obedience to God. Now this cuts across many perceptions of Christianity today and just as many as it did in John's time. 
Many people see Christianity as an added self-help flavoring to life, with good morals here and a prayer there. But this, also, this view also says that if it's not working for you, ditch it. And this is precisely why the claim in verse 5 is so confronting. Verse 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. For John, Christianity isn't just a surface lifestyle choice that sometimes affects your social calendar. Instead, belief in Jesus is a relationship with the living God, and it should inform every choice you make and what comes first in your life. To illuminate why believing in Jesus is such a crucial decision, John repeats a principle he's been drawing on through the whole book. Jesus is the God-man. As we've seen in previous weeks, the world around John struggled to accept Jesus' humanity. They struggled to accept that he was flesh and blood. Today in our world, people have a problem with seeing Jesus as divine, the idea of him being God. But for people living in John's day, the idea that Jesus was a God wasn't a problem. But that God would take on human flesh and become a man, not a chance. So John writes, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. This ancient idea hangs around today. It's this, that Jesus was only a person and that the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism and got right out of there before his crucifixion. How could a good spirit weep and bleed and die? John could also here be talking about blood and and water, the blood and water that he saw flowing from Jesus' side at the cross. But it's more likely that he's saying that Jesus didn't become spiritual at his baptism, half man and half God like Hercules, and stop being spiritual at his death. Instead, these two aspects of Jesus' personhood, fully man, fully God, are inseparable. Think about it. If Jesus wasn't human, then he couldn't represent us. He couldn't identify with us. And he couldn't understand how we feel. Or if Jesus died as a man only, he could not have taken the sins of the world on himself. But instead, Jesus is fully man and fully God. And only God can take our sins away. And only a perfect human perfect like God, but human like you, could die in your place. John makes this a non-negotiable, as unpalatable as it is for the people around him. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. Don't believe Jesus is God? That's fine. But realize that rejecting Jesus' divine nature is rejecting John's eyewitness testimony 
and the testimony of God. At least twice in his life, at his baptism and at the mountain of transfiguration, God the Father says in an audible voice, This is my Son, whom I am well, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. John is making clear for all of us, either we reject his testimony and form another view of Jesus, we form an idol Jesus, or make myself and our own perception an idol, or we believe that Jesus is God's one and only Son, fully human, fully God, who lived, died, and rose again. As John clearly points out, in believing in this, we have eternal life. Friends, many heresies, church schisms, and scandals begin with a warped understanding of Jesus. So often we try to make Jesus palatable to the world around us. We downplay God's judgment, the cross of Christ, or the power of the Holy Spirit. And all we're left with is a lie. In 1973, um, Reinhold Niebuhr offered a line that applies well to how we're often tempted to think about God. He says, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Niebuhr is exposing how hollow a Christless Christianity is. This is why we need to be reading our Bibles regularly, friends. Not just in church, but in small groups and in personal prayer times. If we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. And so often, we'll fall for a false Jesus. That's why understanding who Jesus truly is is crucial if we're to love our neighbors to love God and to experience the fullness of life that he offers. This is why our mission at St. John's is to know Christ and to make Christ known. Because Christless Christianity is vanity. So as John draws his letter to a close, we see him again deviating from a typical letter format. In a typical Greek letter, you would finish with a prayer for the people, or you would share a blessing for them. But John rounds off this letter with some parting remarks about three ways a true understanding of Jesus will change how we pray. And he starts to help us understand how a true understanding of Jesus will change our lives. Firstly, it will give us confidence to face the future. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son, so that you may know that you have eternal life. While we don't exactly know what the people who had left John's church believed, we do know that they left behind a lot of anxiety about the future. A theme throughout the book has been eternal life. The life we enjoy in the present through Christ, that's part of eternal life, but it's also the life we will enjoy with God after we die into eternity. It seems many were doubting their eternal destiny 
with Jesus. The bust up had undermined their confidence in the future. Here John tells us that when we put our trust in Jesus, we can know our future is secure because Jesus has overcome Satan, sin and death. And when we trust in him, his victory is passed on to us. Last Thursday, as we said, was Ascension Day. The day we remember how 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. Before he did this, though, he promised that he would be with us always by his Holy Spirit and that he would return to set all wrongs right. Friends, if we believe, if we believe this, then we can have unlimited hope for the future. Knowing that Jesus has saved us and is coming to put this world right. The second thing a true understanding of Jesus will do is drive us to prayer for holiness. We read in verse 16, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Now the obvious question is what does John mean by a sin that does not lead to death? Well, through the Bible, there are sins that lead to sudden death. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit about money and they perish on the spot. In 1 Corinthians 11, people are mistreating the poor. And Paul writes, some of you are sick as a result of that and some of you have died. Jesus teaches that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin that leads to spiritual death. But here John is probably referring to the Antichrists, those who have rejected Jesus so completely that there's no going back. It's important, though, that we don't get bogged down as to who has committed this sin and who hasn't committed this sin. Because we don't know. That's totally up to God. And so John encourages us to pray for those who have left the church. That's right. John is encouraging his people to pray for those who are slandering him. This is powerful for us because it means that we need to keep praying for our loved ones who have left the faith or even those who have never had faith at all. We need to be praying for people who got baptized but who haven't come to church since. We need to be praying for people who used to come to church but who we don't see anymore. We need to be praying for those who have been so hurt by Christians that they can't join us for corporate worship. We need to keep praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to keep praying for a world that needs to know him. Friends, John is encouraging you and I to spend time on our knees praying for those around us, even if they are actively sinning. We need to pray that God would give them life. It's hard to do day and night. And I must confess that I've got friends that I've stopped praying for because they seem to be going further and further away from God. But this is an encouragement 
to start up again. A small view of Jesus, an idol, will lead us to doubt the power of prayer and stop us from praying. But when we understand Jesus truly, that view of God will drive us to pray for our neighbours in the hope that they might draw close to him. The final application of a true understanding of Jesus is that a true understanding of Jesus will drive us into holiness. We read in verse 18, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Being born again is a vital concept for John. Sadly, the term born-again Christian has begun to seem like a denomination. But John wants the love of God to give us all new life. Anglicans too. He wants us to fight sin in our lives through prayer, repentance, and by making Jesus our top priority. John tells us that when we let God take the wheel in our lives, let him carry us through our struggles and prioritize our holiness, the evil one cannot harm us. He may try, but he'll fail. Sadly, holiness has become a dirty word in our churches because of hypocrisy in church. And it's led us to avoid holier-than-thou people. But friends, we can't let hypocrisy win. Our ultimate goal isn't to be better than others, it's to be more like Jesus. The great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer says this, Holy people glory not in their own holiness, but in Christ's cross. For the holiest saint is never more than just a justified sinner. And he never sees himself in any other way. Friends, let's not give up on the battle for holiness. Let's realize that a right understanding of Jesus, a true understanding of Jesus, will drive us to a life of wholeness, holiness, and obedience to Christ. A true understanding of Jesus will spur us on to becoming more like him. What a great goal. And friends, this is why we read in verse 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's not a departure from the main theme. It is the main theme. The problem for John's community wasn't that they were bowing down to religious statues. It wasn't that they were having internal conflict and that people were leaving the church. Ultimately... It was because they were being tempted to follow false gods. Those who had left the community had done so because they wanted power and influence, but ultimately they did so because they'd started worshipping something or someone other than Jesus, an idol. John isn't saying that for a good life we need to sign up to his organization or that we need to follow a 12-step plan or even submit to his personal authority. Instead, he's saying we need to get our understanding of Jesus right 
And as we do, everything else will fall into place. In, 1950, in 1534, not 1933, oh my goodness, 1534, a Polish scientist named Nicholas Copernicus published a book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. In it, he proposed that the ancient model of the sun revolving around the earth, a geocentric model of our universe, was wrong. And that instead, the planets in our neck of the woods revolve around the sun. It was a revolutionary teaching that went against 1,500 years of scientific thinking. But as soon as people began to realize that the earth did in fact revolve around the sun, planet movements became predictable. Seasons started to make sense. And a new life of scientific discovery became possible. Friends, we need to realize that when we keep ourselves from idols, when we put Jesus at the center of our universe, all of a sudden, life starts to fall into place and eternal life becomes a reality. This is the best summary one John could possibly have children keep yourselves from idols that is ultimately what he wants us to do church growth and unity personal holiness and life in abundance will all flow from a true relationship with the real jesus when we put jesus at the center of our existence his light and his love pours into our souls And so, friends, may we be a church that puts Jesus at the center of our existence. May we be a people who put Jesus at the center of our orbit, both now and forevermore. Amen.